Welcome to the Niche Podcast for Friday, August 24th, 2012. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Kelly Shaper. And we're here to talk about building apps that run everywhere. This week, we discuss programming for a world where everyone has multiple connected devices, the tension between graphic design versus responsive design, and the challenges of managing open source projects. But not before we spend about 15 minutes waffling about juice fasts, coding as a family, and mousing with your face. You've been warned. Sit tight. The Niche Podcast is next. Hello. Hello. You sound very quiet this morning. Sorry. <laughs> Are you sleepy? Yeah, you could say that. <laughs> Me too. Yeah, it sounded like you had a busy day yesterday. Yeah, it's been a little bit of a crazy week. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> I uh, I taught a full day training class on Tuesday, mm-hmm. which um, was the first one. I think that's the first time I've done a full day training class online. Yeah. Oh, it was all online. Yeah. And uh, so it was a lot of scrambling around in logistics and trying to get people's audio hooked up and stuff. Yeah. And to make matters worse, I, uh, Erica and I picked that day to start a juice fast. <laughs> which included no coffee. Oh, my goodness. I'm sorry. Yeah. So I'm currently enjoying my first coffee since uh, Monday. Yeah. I've I've got a, a large one sitting right next to me. So, yeah, I I was surprised. I went for like more than forty eight hours with no coffee whatsoever. And since I'm deeply addicted to the stuff, it's uh, impressive that I didn't fall over dead or kill someone. Yeah, either either end up in a coma or or in a jail cell somewhere. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's it's funny. It sounds like we both had we both had hectic weeks, but our paths have not crossed once until just now, which is really odd for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was thinking that. I was looking for you online. Uh, I looked for you a, a couple times. You weren't around. Yeah. yeah. When was that? <laughs> maybe maybe you had your away status yeah. set or or something. I only I I only. Uh, display people who don't have a way status in my chat so i wasn't desperately in need of checking in i was just curious how things were going just been just been grinding away on grinding away on this this project and um (laughs) making occasional trips to the various doctors yeah how's that going um well my had my laser surgery last week Mm -hmm. and everything's fine uh, I have a follow-up here in just a few hours, which is just, just normal routine stuff. And then um, yesterday I saw the doctor about some pain and numbness I've been having in my in my uh, right hand and wrist. They they gave me, a, gave me a brace for that and did some tests and said it's probably carpal tunnel. And I have to go back for, for like this, this other test where they basically they hook electrodes up to your hand and, and, and check the electrical impulses from your muscles and what have you test for nerve damage mm. and then see a see a hand doctor next month it's just non-stop non-stop fun well i figured since my eye is doing better something else should break 
fun getting old. Yes, eyes doing okay. Time for something else. Yeah, my eyes are getting worse. I can see my my nearsighted, uh, which we call it. I used to be nearsighted, so I could read like really close. I had great vision from like my nose to uh, I don't know, the end of my arm. After that, it was all kind of vague. And then I got uh, LASIK, and now I can like see through walls practically, but uh, I can't. I, I'm almost at. Uh, have to have a full arm's length to read small text on my iPhone, which is much worse than it was a year ago. So I'm probably in the uh, in the market for some reading glasses pretty soon. Back in the market for glasses. Yeah. Yeah. It's like like my dad. You know, he got to the point where he was basically standing on the other side of the room from the computer in order to see it. And he was <laughs> So he was he was farsighted to begin with. So as he's gotten older, it's gotten really, really worse. Yep. I mean, between the two, being farsighted and nearsighted, for me, it's more useful to be able to see things farther away. Uh, but you know, you yeah. know what I mean. <laughs> nearsighted. Then I'm kind of wondering, in ten years from now, if my vision will actually improve as I. You know, older and because you naturally get more farsighted as you get older. Uh, there's something poetic about that. Yeah, that would be. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, more farsighted as you get older. Yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned something about the. Um, I don't. It was like two weeks ago. I think we were chatting offline about. Um, I think you said Wyatt's friend had hand issues, and it it. Uh, ended up being chronic and he used he got some software to like help him uh continue programming yeah yeah he's i was talking to him about it and actually talked to the guy and he said the only real downfall is that he's forced to use windows now <laughs> <laughs> what he has he has several different things that he uses as you know as far as for one for using the mouse um, he has a, an Intuos tablet and a couple of different types of, of mice and, and touchpads and trackballs and things like that just to kind of mix up the mouse movement. Mm -hmm. And then he's also got this one that um, it does motion tracking. It's a it's a camera that does motion tracking for, for controlling the mouse. Right. On his face, right? Yeah, he just puts a, puts a dot on his forehead. And... Okay. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, and uh, he said he then he also uses, um, I think he said it's Dragon Naturally Speaking, to do all of his. You know, he doesn't doesn't do any typing. He uses that for everything. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like from the way he's got it set up that I you know, I asked him because my my first thought with that was well, does it slow you down any when you're doing software development? And he said it doesn't. He said in some ways it's actually faster because the the version he's got allows you to set up. Uh, do scripting and set up macros and what have you. Mm. He can automate a lot of his development process. Wow! Like he can just tell it to you know, insert a insert a link to whatever, and it'll just you know. I mean, it does the does the code for for the link, and you know, it it sounds like you know, he said he's taken a long time to to kind of build up that library of macros over the years, but um now he said he said at some point he wants to, to put him up on GitHub for people to use. Yeah, that sounds cool. I've got uh I've got Dragon. I got it for Christmas like two years ago when I was writing a book and I was having hand problems because I was like working all day coding and then writing the book all night. And uh 
yeah, my hands were a mess. So I get the dragon naturally speaking thing for Christmas. And it was, it's funny because I could type way faster than I can talk. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. yeah. I guess I can too. It's like, well, the stuff that, I, like composing an email, mm-hmm. it's, uh, I don't know what it is. Or like even having a conversation obviously is different. But if I'm trying to compose like an article or something, the way I write is very, it's like this, this, outside in kind of process where I'll do like a very short outline and then I'll drill into each point and drill into each point and drill into each point until it's until it's big enough for wherever it's supposed to go it's not like a stream of consciousness and uh the software is amazing I mean it does an amazing job you know translating the speech to text but I just my brain didn't work like that yeah it would be a big mental shift for me if I had to do that yeah, I guess it does does depend a lot on how your brain works. Um, I was I was talking to Richard the other day about uh, about how uh, I had I had mentioned something about um, people who are fluent in more than one language. I was like, well, what language do you speak in? And Richard Richard looks at me and he's like, or what language do you? I said, what language do you think in? And Rich, Richard looks at me like, you think in words. <laughs> Speaking of languages, we should probably talk about some programming ones. Yes, but before we do that, I want to congratulate you on your 20th episode, or I should say our 20th episode. Yeah, when we first started this, we are like, well, let's do six weeks and see how it goes. Is that what we said? <laughs> that flew by. So yeah, episode 20, very exciting. And I have... No, I have I have several things here. I don't know what you have on your list. But. No, you, yeah, you go for it. There's a bunch of things that we've sort of uh, come up via email that uh, sound really interesting. Yeah, I've got I've got a few little things on the, a couple of little things for the bug report first. Oh, cool. And they're they're both extremely minor, and I just I came up came upon them like, in the process of doing this project. I'm I'm working on a project right now. I'm taking some some PSDs. Um, layouts from from a company that we work with from time to time, and I'm converting them just to like, basically to a WordPress theme, yeah, responsive design, all that. Hmm. And one of the things I came up with, uh, I came across, uh, you know how when you're de- when you're in your CSS file and you're defining a, a CSS rule for something, and you put your properties in the in the uh, the CSS definition. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it normally doesn't matter what order you put them in there. Like you can define a width and then a height and and then a color, or you can do the color then width and height. You know, whatever, it all works out. Hmm. And um, actually, it it turns out that uh, backgrounds the background size property only works if you add it to your CSS after you've added the background image. Is that right? I did not know that. You can put the repeat and the position and of the background and all of that before the image definition, but the size does not work unless it's after you add the image. That is hilarious because I always alphabetize my rules. So I would never have come across that bug. Uh, yeah, I don't guess you would have, would you? Mm. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't know if it's a, I don't know if it's a bug or if it's just the, the way it's supposed to be, but you know. Yeah. You can imagine that there might be some logic to that. It kind of makes sense. It's just the other background properties, it doesn't matter whether you do them in. And then the second thing I came across, which you probably knew about, is in 
at least the at least the latest version of Mobile Safari. I don't know about earlier versions. Um, if you have an HTML element with the class name of phone, then the the browser styles it, kind of adds padding around it, I guess, to make a tap target larger so you can tap on it and, and bring up the dialer and call it. I did not know that. I, it, um, a class name of phone? Yeah, I had a, I had a class, uh, had a link to, the phone, to a phone number in the footer, and I gave it a class name of phone so that I could put an icon next to it. And it was weird because the the icon was there where it was supposed to be, and and then it was like like the phone number was kind of pulled out and separate from that background from that because it was it was weird because I've even added a background color to the whole element just so I could see what was going on, mm-hmm. and um, it basically split the the element into two two things like there was a back there was a gap in the background color. Weird. And what device were you testing on? Uh, my iPhone 4S. I wonder if, I mean, I know that what I thought you were going to say was that the input type uh, tell, remember that right? T-E-L, will uh, will call up a different keypad, but I've never heard of a phone class name doing something in the user agent. You're sure you didn't have a phone class somewhere else in your CSS? It was very strange. Hmm, interesting. Have to look into that. Yeah, I'd I'd never come across it before, and it was. I mean, because that was that was my first thought when I did it was well, I should go back and and double check my CSS and make sure I'm not conflicting with with something somewhere else. And the the only other reference to phone I had was in a media query later on, later on in the CSS where I kind of rearranged things. And um, you know, I took that out, and and it was still there, still doing it to the to the phone class. I, I changed the class name, changed all my changed those two references to to phone in the CSS to to telephone, and it worked fine. Jeez, that's weird, huh? Not not entirely ruling out human error on my part, but if there was, it was something I you know I, I looked for that and I didn't see it, so it was something else really obscure. Yeah, I mean, the only other thing I can think of that's phone-specific is that there's a meta tag that you can add to your um, document to say whether or not you want things that look like phone numbers to be converted into phone numbers. And I wonder if that has something to do with it. Yeah, maybe. I don't think I had that tag, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, I wonder if there's I wonder if there's some... I wonder if, you know, Safari is just trying to be clever about... Um, I guess what I'm saying is I, I wonder if there are other ways to achieve that same effect on an element-by-element element basis. I'll bet you they are. That would make sense that you only want um, certain numbers to look like, to, to be tappable as a phone number and other ones to just be text. So I wonder if that's related to it. Hmm. Very cool. That's that's really interesting. Yeah. To get to, to the bottom of that. To just create a an, an empty HTML page and put a thing in there with a phone class, you know, just to test it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but those were those were my those were my two bugs. Jeez, two in one week. <laughs> and neither of them particularly difficult, but they were both kind of odd to to just sort of figure out. Uh, well, yeah. Well, while we're on the subject of discussing, well, we're kind of not now, but to bring it back to the subject, we're talking about. <laughs> um, we have undertaken a little project here, and that is that we are. 
we are sitting down a few nights a week and learning Python as a family. <laughs> you are too much. And that, that includes my husband and my kid. So That's awesome. Why Python? Um, well, because Richard has started back to university, and one of the courses he's taking is a Python course. Hmm. He's going to be going to be doing it anyway, and Python is is one that I've kind of wanted to to get into for a while. Mm-hmm. Just haven't had the opportunity to, and it's also supposedly a good language to start learning programming in. So. Yeah, so great for kids. That's what I've heard too. So. So yeah, we're we're gonna get a few books and we're just kind of kind of going through it a few nights a week. And I mean, right now most of the stuff we're doing is just review simple basic stuff for him and I both. But it's really really cool to sit there with Kira and watch her figuring it out. Mm. She'll be be typing things into the interpreter and. <laughs> bug it and and then have it work and just get all super excited about it and it's just it's awesome yeah that is cool yeah are you just using is there like a uh, like do you have a little app that you can do that in or is it just doing it at the command line uh, python has a it's like an interactive shell right yeah when way back when google app engine was first announced i looked into python and i really liked it a lot um that was ruby i think ruby was around back then but I was so, I was not anti-Rails, but I just didn't see the, I was just not excited by Rails, so I was never got into Ruby way back then, but, but I never took a nice look at just the Ruby language, um, which, having done since, is very elegant, very, very nice, and uh, Python struck me the same way. Do I, am I remembering correctly that Python has significant white space, though? Yeah, yeah, Python has significant white space, and white space actually matters in Python. Yeah, that's kind. I kind of like that actually because I'm so anal about um, clean code. Yeah, it's like like we opened an if statement, and like you open an if statement, and there's there's no end. It's just a blank line. It's like no, you have to end it. Yeah, it's tough to get your head around, but it really. It's I can very- imagine that once you get used to it, there's no going back. Yeah, and it seems like seems like a lot of people who kind of jumped ship from PHP around that time, like they either went to Ruby or they went to Python. Right. Yeah. And Python just fits much better into the LAMP acronym, so, you know. Yeah. You're not going to go lamer. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, Python probably has better Windows support, too. Oh, is that true? The thing about it is, you know, it's. I always get the sense that the Python community was just way smaller um, than Ruby. Ruby just took off like crazy with Rails, and and it is pretty great. I have to admit. Yeah. But you're gonna know both, so (laughs) so you can flip back and forth. I've been I've been wanting to wanting to learn it for a while, and I I played around with it for like a couple of evenings, and I liked it. I just didn't have the time to get further into it so Mm. you know i think i think it's important to that my kid learn a programming language learns learn the basics of programming heck yeah totally i don't know i think it'd be good for her because 
Kira, Kira is a very, very smart child, just to, to brag for a moment. <laughs> a very smart child, but her biggest problem is that she just rushes through everything so fast that she will, like, she'll do poorly on a test because she rushed through it, not because she didn't know it. Hmm. So, you know, anything that gets her to slow down, I feel like is a good thing. And this will certainly do that because she'll have to, you know, if she rushes through it, she'll make errors and then she'll have to go back and debug and and look through the code and think about it that way. So. Right. Yeah, that's great. I think it's just important. I don't know. I, I mean, of course, I think this because, you know, and you would think this too because we're both programmers, but it's like, I think that that mental thought process, of, if, I mean, it's kind of like it forces you to use the problem-solving areas of your brain which i feel like apply to lots of other places in your life yeah it's um it forces some analytical thinking and well at the same time still some creative thinking too mm -hmm. and it's a mix of both so i just i think as a kid it would be really good for her just to have those skills yeah absolutely i tell people all the time that uh that programming and music activate the same parts of my brain because there are a lot of rules or guidelines, but you still have to improvise constantly. And it, there's tons of, there are tons of constraints, but you know, you can make something, you know, utterly unique and elegant uh, or, you know, beautiful, whatever you want to call it um, in both. It's like the same thing, but you know, programming pays a lot better. <laughs> there is a, I'm trying to think. I think it's called Scratch. Yeah, I played around with Scratch a little bit, and and wasn't too wasn't too into it. It's it's a it's a more graphical type of. Yeah, it's like a WYSIWYG programming thing. Yeah, she wasn't wasn't too into it, and yeah, I I don't know why. It could just be because she sees like us writing actual code all the time. Mm really feel like what in her head programming is supposed to be right i don't i don't know it could have just been the that she didn't i don't know it was it was about a year ago so she may have just not been ready for it yet but right i i think probably scratch might i don't know uh i just pulled it up online it says it's for children six and up it's probably she's probably a little older than it probably Python makes more sense. It sounds like you're, she's already getting some traction there. Yeah, she's loving it. You know, we're we're still doing, still doing the very the very basics, but she's she's really enjoying it. Mm -hmm. That's cool. I had Cooper on my lap last night. I had, you know, when you're like almost done with a programming thing, and you just if you stop, you know, before the next fifteen minutes, you're just gonna have to start all over. I was like, I had 15 more minutes to go, and Cooper was like totally ready to start playing with Daddy. Yeah. So, uh, I he jumped up in my lap, and I opened uh, uh, YouTube in the top half of my screen, and I had I was like coding in the lower half of my screen, you know. So he's sitting there watching uh, garbage truck videos at the top, and me coding PHP in the bottom, <laughs> and and writing SQL statements and stuff. I was I like, I wonder what this is gonna do to his brain. <laughs> So, in 10 or 15 minutes of that, and then we went out. And... Would have been better if you'd been working on like some garbage collection functions or something. 
Maybe I could just drag the video into the text editor. That would be cool. So let's see, lots of, uh, lots of coding and lots of roll up the sleeves work for me this weekend for you, lots of the, that stuff. Uh, but I did have a um, bit of a back and forth online on Twitter about um, platforms and sort of future, uh, future friendly apps, you know, to bring it back to our, our ultimate concept of building stuff that runs everywhere. Um, I sort of had this, I sort of absentmindedly tweeted that um, as people begin carrying more and more different devices, um, they're going to, you know, that, that uh, app developers are going to want to uh, be on all of them. Their users are going to be, I think, put demand on developers to be on the platforms that they want them on. So if you imagine that a person has... Uh, you know, an iPhone, or maybe they have a Kindle Fire, an iPhone, um, you know, some kind of, uh, 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 what am I trying to say, a uh, game console, Roku, you name it, there could be, you know, the average house, the average person, I, I predict is going to touch, you know, five or six different uh, types of devices throughout the day, uh, some of them carried on them, uh, Nikon just released an Android camera, which sounds totally ridiculous, uh, because every Android phone probably has a camera, but this is like an, a like a real camera with a real lens and uh, and Wi-Fi, which I think like it's about time. But anyway, weeks ago, someone needed to do that. Oh yeah, yeah. We're on the on the podcast. We were saying you know that that Erica has the nice camera. You were saying she has a nice camera. She does. Oh yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Well, so finally Nikon did it. <clears throat> But anyway, the point being uh, is that as much as uh, Apple wants us all to be in this iOS ecosystem of Apple TV and uh, Mountain Lion and iOS and, you know, iPad, uh, iPhone, iPod Nano, blah, 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 it's not going to happen. Um, it, well, of course, it will happen to some degree, but it's not going to be, they're not going to get 100% coverage. And people are going to have lots of different devices, you know, lots of different platforms, and as the pressure mounts on developers to provide a good user experience, um, which I think all app developers want to do, they want to provide a good experience. Part of that experience is going to be a, this continuous client notion um, that that the app can sort of pick up where it left off on whatever device is closest at hand or most convenient to our current context or posture or uh, environment. Right. And in in a case like that, the platform itself, the platform features that are kind of infecting the apps um, are going to have to, they're going to begin to fade away. And then the, the only experience left will be of the app when the app is open. And so some people, you know, sort of the web people that follow me were all like, you know, here, here. Yeah, totally. That's, that's an obvious trend that's going to happen. But I got some serious pushback, understandably, from people who were, you know, platform developers. So like, uh, you know, Android people being like, oh, you know, but, you know, you can't just, you know, you can't have write one app and have it run everywhere, which isn't what I was saying exactly, at least in the Java sense or the Flash sense. Um, but the, the thing that uh, came up and has come up before is the difference between Android having a physical back button and iOS not having a physical back button. And, you know, 
I just thought, I just think that's absurd. Like if, if you really want to write your app twice because you don't want to put a back button inside of your app on Android phones, then more power to you. But mm-hmm. that not only do I think that's not a great user experience uh, in the context where a user is on, you know, an iPod touch and an Android phone, you want the app to look the same, you know, and I think it's more about, it's less about the platform. It's more about the um, a sort of device bucket. So if you bucket your, uh, say, small touchscreen devices into one bucket, you should have an app experience that's that's like that, you know, that's appropriate to that. And then maybe another bucket around the 7-inch tablet size. So you've got touchscreen again, but you've got more real estate. How do you use that real estate? Same application, same branding. Uh, it should feel instantly, um, it should be instantly understandable to someone who has used any of the other apps. I'm not saying it's supposed to be, it should be just a zoomed in version and, and have that experience on Mac windows and Linux, if you want, and smart TVs. And, and the, the fact that Android has a physical back button, that kind of thing is just going to keep being an issue. Like windows phone is going to have, it has a different set of buttons. I think, I think windows phone has a back button too. And it, it's just like, I don't know. I just think that that's super short-sighted to say, "Oh well, we have to build apps that are that are platform resident." I call it, or they're like they they fit into the platform. And I don't know. I just think that that's the that's something that platform vendors have have been suggesting to developers for so long that developers are now buying it when really all it does is create lock-in to the platform. Yeah. Yeah. You should you should be creating an experience. And I mean, there's there's something to be said for making use of the native native kind of UI in terms of like the the back button and things like that. But I mean, it's it's not like you're saying just completely ignore any any feedback or usage of that button. It's just that you know if you're gonna have an, an in-app back button on iOS, you should have an in-app back button on Android or on Windows you know, for just to maintain consistency. Yeah, absolutely. Support support the hardware back button. Go ahead. That's fine with me too. But I'm just saying, yeah, that yeah. that you can't be customizing. Um, you know what it is? I just realized what it is. I think that in the future, you're not actually doing your users a favor by customizing your app to different platforms. That is what my point actually is. I think you're actually doing them a disservice. Introduces confusion. Yeah. I don't want to relearn your stupid app on two different phones. It drives me crazy. Like Twitter, the Twitter app on uh, the the default Twitter app on iOS and Android was different for a long time, and it's different from their web experience on mobile. And it's it's obnoxious. It's super frustrating. It gives you a uh, it's similar enough looking that uh, just from a branding standpoint that you're like, um, what's wrong with the Twitter app? You know. So it's, it's just not doing, and I think I feel this way because I have so many different devices and I think most people don't, but I think they're going to. So once that, uh, once a tipping point kind of takes place there, it's just, you know, I I think it'll become much more obvious, you know, consumers are just going to complain about apps that basically appear to be broken or with features missing on other platforms when really they're just built differently. Yeah. Let's see. I think I had a lot this week. What's that? I have a lot of things this week. You got more on your list? I had a couple of things. Bring it on. 
Um, the fr- uh, a couple things. One that I had, and I believe I talked to you about it. Uh, speaking of of building apps for for multiple platforms, so this kind of ties in. Is um, I guess kind of striking a balance between the the visual, so the design and the details of your design, versus the amount of of, of effort and feasibility of, of practically implementing that. Mm. And I, I don't really know what there is to be said about it because how you reach that. So, well, let me some background first is I'm working on a working on a layout right now and I'm doing this this WordPress theme and it needs to be responsive. And it's just it's an absolutely gorgeous design. I love it. It's beautiful. It's a it's a work of art, but it, it is so incredibly detailed that getting it to work on all of the things that it needs to work with is just becoming it's a huge it's not it's not a pain it's just well it's just it's just really really tedious and and time consuming and it's requiring a lot of a lot of code and a lot of css and and some javascript in there as well and it's just i don't i don't know i mean the the answer of, of where that balance is depends on a number of things it you know both, both from a technical standpoint and a marketing standpoint, that it's just. Yeah, I, I, the design is gorgeous. I saw it, but as soon as I saw it, I was like, "Wow, that's going to be hard to code." Um, you know, have you thought about using an image map? <laughs> uh, the it's funny because the 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 design is, it looks like, um, uh, old school. Well, the design is is very modern and cool, but it looks like it came from a mind, or, or was done by a person who, um, who came from print. You know, and it thinks from the canvas in, like, okay, I've got this much canvas to fill. What am I yeah. going to fill it with? And and it looks great on that particular canvas, but to make it um, fluid and flexible and responsive you kind of have to have that thought process from the get-go in the de- in the visual design never mind the user experience and all the interactivity but um and it's i think this is why ios is so attractive to uh, advertising people and people who came from print because it's ios is in spite of some fragmentation in terms of device hardware it is very much a canvas that you can work with if you only care about iOS, you know, you can be like, this is the screen size for phones. This is the screen size for tablets. There are two screen sizes. Um, you know, the biggest deal really is the difference in resolution for, for that sort of a de- designer or developer. But, but really to me, that is in most cases, not all cases, but in most cases, you're really just lying to yourself with the design because it's, you know, yeah, it looks amazing in this one place but there are all these other places where it's either um, not going to look as good or it's going to take a Herculean effort to to make it work. Well, they have, I don't know if I showed you or not, but they there is a, a mobile, let's have a set of PSDs for the mobile version as well. Mm. And it's, again, it, it looks really good, but it is it is in many ways very, very different and you know they they don't want a mobile site and a desktop site, so it all has to be one responsive layout. So you end up kind of rearranging elements with JavaScript based on 
which screen resolution you're using and and the CSS styling on some elements is is just totally different so you end up with very large CSS files yeah I I have this is this is a really actually a very interesting topic uh, for sort of the response of web design community and people that are interested in that um, Dave Canada from Sencha he's not there anymore but uh, he was at Sencha touch for a while he originally did JQ touch and he is a designer's designer. He's all about like gorgeous, pixel perfect, you know, Apple fanboy, yada, yada, yada. And uh, he said something at a conference that I thought really resonated, um, it, which is JavaScript's not evil. And you just alluded to the fact that you're actually using JavaScript to move things around. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've done something that I suppose would be considered a violation of pure read, write, uh, read, write web. Uh, responsive web design, I'm like thinking initials RWD, um, which is that uh, and normally with a media query, you just like resize the window or you change the orientation of the phone or whatever, and the, the, the sort of rearranging of the furniture or the new CSS rules get applied just based on the media query. There's no scripting. Right. Uh, but there are cases where you want to do some heavy lifting with reordering the source order of the HTML so you don't have to write 10 pages of CSS um, or debug complicated CSS repositioning. And I have in the past done things where uh, just, just JavaScript listeners where if the window changes size or, or if, you know, on orientation change or, um, or on window resize, uh, actually make another request to the server and get a new basically reload the page and yeah. which effectively is going to get a new template from the server and that is definitely um, <laughs> uh, not the purest's approach but I think that if you if if it's the user that we're uh, trying to support and the user that we're, we're worried about um, and you can do you can do a lot on the server side that is very difficult on the on the client and if you um, if you consider that in your approach and you say, hey, you know, maybe I just need to, you know, if I just reload the page, I can cut out, you know, 20K of, J of JavaScript or 20K of, of CSS, you know, it might be the way to go. Right. Yeah, I didn't, I haven't gone quite that extreme with this, but I've certainly thought about it. Uh, but for instance, on this one, we have on the, on the desktop version of the site, there's a, a nice horizontal nav bar at the top. And then when you get to the mobile version, that kind of collapses into, it becomes one button that you tap that then you have the same menu just kind of slides down mm -hmm. the page. So, you know, there's, there's JavaScript that has to deal with that without, without completely, you know, redoing all of your markup mm. and things like that. So, yeah, that's becoming kind of a classic navigation design pattern on mobile. Not to not to knock the guys. Like I said, they do they do beautiful work, and and they do beautiful work. And the projects uh, they're they're challenging and they're tedious, but I always come away learning something from them. And they're just they're great people to work with. I love it. But but um, and I, and I feel like the type of client that they cater to probably cares. If they had to choose between sacrificing a little bit of functionality and a little bit of the aesthetics, they're gonna what they're gonna want to sacrifice on the on the speed. I feel like mm -hmm. just just the the nature of the clients they tend to work with, but um, so you know where where that balance is, like I said, depends on a number of factors and 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 what the the clients the clients marketing and, and branding and image is certainly one of them to consider. 
Yeah, yeah, no doubt. I mean, it's uh, it's something that every client basically has to answer. You know, it's a it's a business decision. Uh, it happens to me all the time. I'll hear people be like, you know, uh, make sure the iOS version is perfect, and we don't really care about Android. Just make sure it works on Android. You know, which I think is hilarious because then they'll turn. I'll be like, well, you know, there are more Android users, and they'll be like, yeah, but we don't have. We don't have that much Android traffic on our site. It's mostly from iOS. I'm like, that's because your site sucks on Android. <laughs> so it's like a, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy kind of thing. But it, it is up ultimately. It is up to the client. They're paying the bills, and if the boss has an iPhone, then it better look good on an iPhone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's the same as it was with the browsers. It's like if if you're if you're uh, you know if the boss or the person who was in charge of the project had ie6 that that was what they were going to view the website in so it better work in ie6 as long as it's not ie 5.5 for mac yeah that's what i was gonna say <laughs> i figured that would be too obscure of a reference yeah well unless you're a long time listener of the niche spot <laughs> yeah. and um yeah so uh, i had a, had another thing and a, a comment to make on that and i just lost it so uh, I, w- I will mention while you're thinking that Brad Frost um, uh, over at RGA has a great post on responsive navigation patterns, um, which is uh, he's got basically one, two, three, four, five, six, seven different, uh, seven different types of navigation patterns, uh, including the hide and cry, <laughs> which I think is the do nothing approach. But anyway, the... Uh, uh, it's a kick-ass article that outlines the pros and cons of the different uh, navigation design patterns that he's seeing, and um, it's great. So we'll link to that in the show notes. Yeah, interested in taking a look at that. I haven't seen it. Yeah, Brad's one of those guys that if you're into mobile mobile web, he's someone to follow for sure, like Brad, Luke, Luke Rabluski, uh Josh Clark, all all great stuff. Then the only other thing I had this week, um, other than the fact that I could go into a small rant on why I now hate WordPress, uh, <laughs> uh, the only other thing I had this week was um, actually I had, I had done a, a lengthy article on it, and I, which I believe you saw. Yes, great article. Source contributing to open source software. Yeah, we have to link to that. It's totally awesome. Not only that, but it, it, you also reference an article about, uh, I think it's the title is On Critiques. That's another good one, too. Thank you. <laughs> yes, I wrote that one a while ago. Yeah, that was great. But, um, Do you yeah. want to sort of paraphrase or summarize the open source? I can sort of paraphrase and sort of summarize because it's it's kind of a lengthy article. But, um, yeah. I, I maintain or assist in maintaining a few different open source projects. And, you know, some of them have my name on them, some of them don't. I mean, there's, there's some I'm just kind of like a, a stealth ninja open source contributor. Yeah. And um, some, a lot of them, well, a couple of them, a lot of what I do, and in one case pretty much all of what I do, is uh, code review for incoming incoming submissions from other people hmm. and um i don't know i've just i've noticed noticed some trends when people submit code kind of into these into these um 
into these projects. And I don't know, in, in a lot of cases, it hasn't really, hasn't really played out very favorably. And I just, I just feel like a lot of people kind of go into an open source project and, and they submit, submit code to it or will maybe criticize or make assumptions about it without really a good understanding of, of, of the project. And not just of the project from, from a technical standpoint, but, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of things to consider when you're dealing with an open source project and, I mean, for instance, there's there's a lot of different reasons people open source code, and the motivations and reasons behind why that code is open is going to de- going to affect sort of sort of the code lifecycle and how they handle um, contributions from from outside developers. Right. Yeah. I mean, it could be that it could be that the code was open source just so you know. I have a friend that's working on a like a security startup security oriented startup and it's a javascript thing so the um they open source the code not because they want contributions but so security professionals can audit the code right and also um i feel like there's a lot of things that kind of go on behind the scenes of of an active open source project that if you're if you're not part of a core development team you're probably not aware of in a lot of cases Hmm. And which can can impact whether or not you know, how how code submissions and code reviews are handled. A lot of it comes down to business requirements and and personal personal life. I mean, you know, if you have a company that's open sourced a code for something, you know, if if they have a slow develop slow release cycle or a s- slow kind of review process or a sort of time consuming process for submitting code. Yeah, they they first and foremost they have to look out for for the needs of their their business and their paying customers and it's it's the same with a community project you're gonna have you're gonna have priorities and and paying the bills has to come first kind of thing. Yeah, the whole open source thing is it's I feel like it's kind of unprecedented. Uh, it's you know it's a it's a complex sort of shared authoring kind of thing. But you're right, like people who uh, that you, you kind of want to bring in and, and uh, take advantage of the long tail of people who just make one bug fix and, you know, send a pull request. But when I was working on JQ Touch, which was the that was the main open source thing that that I've done. I was maintaining that I maintained that for like it was a, the first contributor and then I maintained it for like a year or something. And, you know, you get that project was i don't know i don't know if i would say fairly popular but it was like the video on the homepage got over a million views it was downloaded you know like a hundred thousand times at least so it was it was busy enough to bury me in email about it you know you know things like and i would get pissed i I admit i would like have to not reply to certain emails immediately uh, because they're just just probably just out of naivete emailing me instead of uh adding an issue to the issue tracker or going on the mailing list which was you know perfectly well advertised on the home page um you know as places to go they would just immediately email me uh you know with like like oh i can't get this to work i can't get that to work and that was draining you know when you just have one person on the project um 
And the other thing that happens that you're alluding to is that a lot of people, I get a lot of pull requests and I wouldn't be able to get to them right away and people would get pissed because they were all excited and they were going to contribute to JQ Touch and they love this project and, you know, it, it wasn't my day job. So it was like, you know, I would get to them when I got to them and usually what would happen is I'd review them real quick, see if it was something that was a, a critical bug fix or something and if it wasn't, it'd get pushed off to the weekend or something. And then they'd start emailing me. How come you didn't, you know, review my pull? You know, it gets it gets old. And then and the other thing that you talk about in the article is that people will submit the people it, on JQ Touch. They would be like, they would be working on a project and they would need I don't know like a, a slider control or some kind of mobile widget that wasn't native or wasn't part of JQ Touch or like database persistence. That's a classic one. And they'd say, oh, well, I added I added data persistence to JQ Touch, and they send a pull request. And I'm like, well, we decided a long time ago not to do that. Like, we aren't going to put data persistence in it because uh, it was there are other things that can do that. We just wanted it to be a UI thing, front end, you know, just very skin type of thing. And, uh, and people would add things to it that, first of all, only worked on iOS or only worked on Android, and they didn't even test it on the other devices or uh, was just a feature of their particular app that wouldn't be useful to the general population that was using JQ Touch. We so, get we get that all the time. Yeah. Getting, submitting modifications and okay, oh, I added this great feature. Like, well, yeah, that great feature is only good for for your one project. Yeah, and it doubles the code base. Yeah. Or they would say, "Oh, I redesigned this to make it look better." but it's totally not accessible or whatever. How this looks is completely subjective and and the project has sort of a brand image that it's trying to maintain. Yeah. Or, you know, it's like, oh, I added this. And it's like, well, yeah, but the implementation is is not consistent and down the road when we add other this other feature, it's going to totally break. Having this code in there is going to totally break everything. Right. They just don't have the big picture. Yeah, yeah they don't, don't look at the big picture. And I mean, I would we would have people like just like get pissed and argue with us that no, we were wrong because, oh, for instance, uh, for instance, this is here's one example. Um, we had a guy submitting a bunch of, of CSS modifications, and the changes he were making were doing things like he was changing how the code was indented. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, that's I hate that. That's one. It's disrespectful to not follow the guidelines set forth in the project, and two, it's just silly because if your editor does not handle that for you, then you're you, you get a better editor. Yeah, right. <laughs> not but, to mention uh, the fact that 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 in a in a versioning system, that's going to basically make it look like the whole thing was changed. It's going to completely screw up your your diffs and your version history there. It's going to make it messy. Yeah. So, and there there were other other changes he was making to the CSS too. And I was like, and I made the comment that, well, the CSS at this point, what we have is pretty stable, but there are some, some UI changes that we have plans to already to make. So I was saying, why don't you just wait until after those plans are made? And we have <clears throat> the sort of the less files that the CSS is compiled from in the source repository. Right. After these changes, changes are made, and the less sources there, if you want to go back and, and work on the CSS, do it then. 
And so in the meantime, if you see bugs related to browser compatibility and you want to change those in the CSS so we can kind of patch things up later, go ahead. And it just, oh, it just led into this huge argument. And the whole thing I was saying was like, it's like, just wait. And, and the whole argument was, oh, well, you're too controlling about this. You claim it's open source, but you don't allow outside contributions. And Yeah. You know, you know who's like my my idol when it comes to this stuff is Brian Larue at PhoneGap. He, if anybody, if anybody even starts with that, he just says fork it and stops talking. Yeah, I thought you were gonna. I thought you were gonna say Linus <laughs> <laughs> to, the, to the Linux core. But yeah, I mean, I just I got to the point where finally I was like, well, I this is the way it is. I'm not gonna argue with you over it. Right. But um, yeah, it is just I don't know. Like, like, don't take stuff personally and just listen to what's being said and be patient, I guess. Yeah, it's hard because you get excited. You know, I've contributed small little fixes to projects, and but you have to come at it with some humility and realize that you don't have access to the big picture. You don't. No. You know, if there's no um, if there's no roadmap, and probably there isn't, if there's no, you know, then it, like a, a, a casual contributor is not going to have access to the big picture and the internal meetings and all of the chats and, and all that. And um, an open source project, as soon as it hits even a modest scale, is going to have a massive number of constituents and stakeholders that, uh, that all kind of have to be considered. It's sort of the strength and the weakness. You can't just, you can't just say it's going to be this way or that way and expect to maintain any level of popularity. So there's just a lot of things to be considered, and and for a casual contributor to get all out of joint is super. It, you know, it's kind of insulting, you know, it when is. somebody gives somebody turns in a change, that's like, that, that like if somebody turns in a simple, like I can remember one particular thing. I'm at one time I'm thinking of, uh, where somebody thought something was a lot easier than it was and implemented it the way that they thought it should work obviously didn't test it mm -hmm. and submitted it i tested it it didn't work and i knew it wouldn't because it's way more complicated than the person realized and uh uh you know and he was like essentially talking about me on lists you know not why doesn't he just put it in why doesn't he just put it in and i told him i'm like it doesn't work you know sure. did you test it you know, and and the code that he and the code that he wrote was like three lines. It was like ridiculously simple. And I'm like, if you really think that, you know, if you look at this code base and you think that if it was that easy, I wouldn't have done it. Like, like, do you think I'm an idiot? You know, it was it. I I not 100% proud of this, but it was. I took it as an insult. Like he thought I sucked basically, and let, all I needed was these three lines of code, and that feature would work. Yeah. Like, John, you idiot. Why didn't you edit? Yeah, like... <laughs> so, eventually, I got him to test it, and he was like... And then he's like, on the list, like, oh, it's more complicated than I thought. Yeah. No, really? <laughs> it was a desirable feature, but it's just, like, unimplementable. It's weird. Like, you're, it's, sometimes your brain can think of a feature that seems easy or obvious, and then as you start to dig into it, it's brutal. Like, yeah. Like, paging. Like that's my classic example is like paging through a list of database results in a multi-user system that has highly volatile data. It's like there's no reasonable way for it to work because as the data set changes underneath you, how do you know what page five is? Like what's the expectation? 
you know, if, if something was deleted on page one, should page five not know about that or, or should it, you know? Yeah, it's very, <laughs> it's just, there, there's so much that goes into these things that, that people aren't aware of and, and don't consider. And, you know, sometimes, sometimes open source doesn't mean open development. It just means here's the source, take it and, and, and do your thing. It doesn't mean here's the source, help us make it better. Yeah, and, that that's an important distinction that I think is not obvious to everyone. Is that just because I'm letting you see, you know, it, like the security guy, he's not accepting contributions for anyone. It has nothing to do with that. He just wants people to be able to look at the code if they want to so they feel secure about how it works. Yeah. That's open source. Yeah. It's open source. And if you want to take it and modify it for your own uses, fine, go ahead. If you want to redistribute it, if the license agreement is cool with that, fine, go ahead. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be able to contribute to the core project. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I suppose it would be, I, I suppose it's conceivable. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess people do this. You could have an open source project that's not freely licensed. Yeah, it happens all the time, actually. Like, somebody will have, like, a GPL license or, you know, here's open source and you can use this to go, um, you know, do whatever you want for your personal projects, but you're not allowed to include it in, like, a, a commercial project or whatever. Yeah. And and I think having having something that's just open source but not accepting outside contributions, that's that's a perfectly valid thing to have. Oh, yeah. I don't know of anyone who has something like that who who would reject a critical bug fix that someone found mm -hmm. in in the general sense of, of developing and, and growing a project. You know, just not everything is going to be available to you. And But the great thing about open source is that you can always fork it and do your own thing, mm. whether, whether you distribute it for other people or whether it's just your own thing for your own use. You know, you don't have to let... I guess what I'm saying is the restrictions placed on contributing to a project doesn't have to stop you from, from doing those interesting things that you want to do with that code. It mm. just limits how or whether or how that code can be distributed. But for your own use, go to town on it. Right. Yeah, man, fork it. <laughs> it just totally ends the conversation. It does. Like, you know, just fork it. <laughs> yeah. The other thing LaRue says when somebody's breathing down his neck about uh, when's this going to be implemented, when's it going to be implemented, he just goes, we don't, we don't do deadline-driven development. Exactly. Yeah. It's just like, it just ends the conversation. It's so funny. Yeah. Yeah, I've had that before. It's like, well, when is this going to be implemented? Or, or when is this going to be available in the, in the next, re in like, the release? And I said, well, well it's going to be available when it's done and when it works well. Yeah. So. So yeah, I mean it. It is. Um, it's funny, you know. It's like a gigantic team project, and you, yeah. It's it's very. I I can't think of an example in real life other than possibly the democratic process. I mean, like what, you know, like Congress is that like, a, uh, is that like an analogy to open source development? I don't know. It's like uh, it's kind of like its own thing, and it's got its own um own sort of social mores i guess yeah it is it's a it's a giant team project with uninvited team members <laughs> yeah yeah it's like inviting everyone to your house to decorate or something 
for a volunteer organization. So I know you have to take off, and I've got a um, a call coming up in about half an hour. Yeah. There's just one last thing I wanted to mention. Remember last week I was talking about the wheels for your iPad double robotics thing? Uh, It was like a a segue for your iPad that you could remote control. Yep. Uh, Well, they sold out. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. I'd like to think we were responsible. (laughs) Yeah, they had, uh, they were available for, to ship in December 2013. So a couple months from now, 2000 bucks a pop and they are sold out. If I have a, a, a a doppeljohn shows up on my doorstep, I'm going (laughs) to. Yes, I'm sure we can expect to start seeing uh, ghostly iPads gliding down the hallways of the mall of malls and museums near us soon. Pretty soon, I'm just picturing a future where everyone attends school that way. Like you still have these school buildings, (laughs) school buildings, and it's like just a bunch of disembodied iPads just roaming, hanging out at the lockers. And (laughs) would they, would they like, would they stuff the geeky ones in the lockers and? Lock them in. I'm just, I'm just trying to picture what gym class would be like. <laughs> yeah, I can't see dodgeball happening there. Maybe they could. Maybe it'd be like Angry Birds somehow. Birds. <laughs> Pong. <laughs> yep. So don't be surprised when you see an iPad gliding past you. Uh, so that's our show for this week. Uh, Jonathan Stark. Kelly Shaver. Thanks for joining us. We hope to have you here again next week for the Mitch Podcast. See you later. Bye. What?